lips of God's children singing his praise. It's really moving, isn't it? Do you uh, grab yourselves a seat? Well, nearly uh, 150 years ago, uh, those who went before us here in our church community were given a vision by God to plant a Baptist church somewhere in this neck of the woods in Christchurch. And here we are, all these years on, standing on the shoulders of giants this morning. We're standing on the shoulders of giants. We're benefiting, aren't we, this morning from all of their faithfulness, from all of their obedience, as we, in our day, and I guess in our particular way, are seeking to be a faithful, a worshipping, and a witnessing community. That's what we're called to be as a church family. We're called to be faithful, we're called to be worshipping, we're called to be witnessing. Now, in so many ways, of course, the vision hasn't actually changed, but the model of delivering that, I guess, has changed. The cultural context to which we're seeking to be that worshipping, faithful, witnessing community has changed somewhat as well. I want you to imagine for just a moment, if you can, what it must have been like to have been that church way back then. I wonder what it felt like to be the giants that I've just described them to be as they pursued this vision of God more than a century ago. I'm guessing that probably a bit like us today, they probably felt a certain amount of fear and they were almost certainly wrestling with the scale of the vision that God had given them. Can you imagine their questions for just a moment? Have we really heard God right? Do we actually have the faith levels that we need to really pursue this call that we've received from God if we have indeed even heard it right? And then the big in, hey, who hasn't wrestled with this one? How do we reconcile the size of the vision against the resources that we seem to have at our disposal? And then, of course, I guess the church wrestled with all those what-if questions. What if this? What if that? What if the other? My guess is they probably didn't feel like giants at all. But as we look back now, I think actually it's a really appropriate metaphor to describe all that they achieved as God enabled them. Maybe if they were able to look back now, as we are with the benefit of hindsight, they would realize they were giants, although I'm guessing at the time they probably felt like minnows or minions or maggots or, I don't know, pick another M. Isn't hindsight just the most wonderful thing? I so wish I could live my life now with the benefit of the hindsight that I would know later. If only hindsight were foresight, wouldn't some of the wrestles that we have in life be so much easier uh, to deal with? I came across a great quote this week. It takes some getting your head around, but it's brilliant. Hindsight gives insights, which improves foresight. Did you get that? Hindsight gives insights, which improves foresight. So in other words, as we look back at what God has done before, we should be really, really encouraging our faith today to know that there's every reason to believe that the God who has done something before can and will do it again in our day. Hindsight gives insights, which improves foresight. See if you can still repeat that sentence by late afternoon on a Sunday. You know, when I think about the church a hundred years ago, I expect they needed to hear from God the kind of prophetic word that we heard. Do you remember those of us who gathered June 2019 at Moorlands? We heard a prophetic word, a word in season from Andrew Ollerton, who's the author of the Bible course, who was speaking on that Sunday. Do you remember not knowing what we were pursuing? He said, be wholeheartedly courageous. Do not give fear the microphone. Put God in first place, and then we can put fear in its place. 
Now, today, there's no doubt, is there, that we are the beneficiaries of the wisdom and of the, the, the knowledge and of the contributions of all those who have gone before us. And as I've been thinking about this over the last couple of weeks, I've been profoundly challenged by my responsibility. In fact, it's not mine. It's our responsibility as inheritors of that legacy to not merely admire these giants from afar through the lens of history only, but in fact to build upon the foundation that they have laid for us. We're very much part of a rich and interconnected tapestry of human history. Our story today has unbroken continuity with the story that's gone before us. Do you know, I really love that thought, the idea that our faithfulness today in pursuing the vision that God has for us might just make it possible for a future generation to continue worshipping and witnessing long after I've departed this mortal life. I'm going to be gobbled up by worms one day, but I wonder whether or not there'll still be a worshipping and a witnessing community here in Christchurch. It's possible if we do our part today. I wonder what kind of a legacy we're going to be leaving for future generations. Somebody once described a legacy as planting seeds in a garden that you never get to see. Planting seeds in a garden that you never get to see. Now, leaving a meaningful legacy, and I'm not primarily talking about a financial legacy here, I guess that's included, but I'm talking about a spiritual or a kingdom legacy. It demands being inspired in the here and now about a vision that can only become reality in the future. Now, I don't know about you, but that sounds kind of scary to me and exciting all at the same time. But two, it's an act that can never, ever be motivated by our own sense of self-interest. When I think about the church 100 years ago, I'm blown away, actually, by the magnitude of the vision that they grasped from God. At the time, Christchurch was a a relatively small community. There were about about 6,000 people compared now to about 50,000, depending on how you measure it. But actually, the need was exactly the same. There were people who hadn't yet come to know and love Jesus, and so the planting of the church here in its different forms until we end up in this form enabled those 6,000 people to have an even greater chance of coming to know Jesus as a consequence of their faithfulness. And in a sense today, our call is just the same, and the magnitude of the call that God has for us is just as great. When you read back in the history books of CBC, you discover they invested £6,000 into this building that we now get to enjoy. That's one pound for every single person who was living in the community at the time. Wouldn't it be great if we only had to raise £50,000, one pound per head uh, for our build project today? It sounds so easy, doesn't it? But of course, it wasn't. Now, I did some maths, which is always a dangerous thing. £6,000, 100 years ago, taking into account Inflation rates over the last 100 years, £6,000 was equivalent in value today to the value of about 1.2 million of our current British pounds. Sounds so easy, doesn't it, to raise £6,000, but actually their task was really to raise in our money 1.2 million. It's so easy to, to look back through the lens of history with hindsight and say, well, they were living in the good old days. It was the days when everything was much easier than it is today. The call on us is so much greater and harder than it was on those who have gone before us. But let's not minimize their step of obedience before God. Because it demanded the same levels of faith and courage that we have today. Today, I'm really grateful for the giants who have gone before us. 
Some months back when we were praying about all this, it was just before a church members meeting, I felt really led by God to pray, Lord, would you do it again? I shared that at the time. Lord, would you do it again? Lord, in our day, would you do what you've done in our history? And as I prayed this prayer, it was a really tangible reminder to me that the God that we worship today is the same God who's done similar things before, and therefore he can do it over again even in our day. In fact, we don't need to think back 100 or 150 years, do we, to remind ourselves of God's faithfulness as a church family. We've seen his faithfulness over and over and over again in our very recent past. And as we put all these stories together with the history of CBC, these stories remind, uh, are a reminder to us that the God that we know is the same God yesterday, today, and forever, Hebrews chapter 13. In fact, as you'll hear in a moment in our verses of Scripture for this morning, God declares himself to be an unchanging God. I, the Lord, do not change, he says. He's been faithful for every storm. He's never failed us yet. He's made a way for us where there's been no way. His faithfulness has consistently been great to us as a church family. Just as he performed miracles in the past and does amazing things in the past, he will do it again, and why not, in our day. Now, for this morning, I felt led towards a very challenging piece of Scripture, and it comes with a health warning. And yet, at the same time, this is a really encouraging chunk of Old Testament for us from the book of Malachi, or for the Italians amongst us from the book of Malachi. I know I pronounced it wrong, but it's not funny otherwise. And what we find in this book of Malachi is this amazing story of two interconnecting parts. It tells the story of an incredibly faithful God alongside the story of a people who were faithless and those two things connecting together. And in a sense, the big overarching theme of the book of Malachi is that God loves you and God is for you. I cannot tell you how much I need to hear that this morning, that God loves me and that God is for me. He says in chapter 1, verse 2, I have loved you. Wow, what a great message for the people of God to hear is the very first words that are being spoken through the lips of this prophet. I have loved you. Now, God doesn't begin here by pointing out their sins or listing all the complaints that he has against them. He simply says, I have loved you. Now, that all sounds very past tense, doesn't it? But actually, the word love here is written in the perfect tense in the original language. It indicates here that God not only loved in the past, but he loves in the present and he will continue to love on into the future. In effect, God is saying through Malachi here, I have loved you and I do love you and I will always love you. But it's even better than that. The word Malachi chooses here is not the typical Old Testament word for love, which is about tough love or about covenant love. But the word Malachi uses means much more this sense of, I have embraced you. My arms are open wide towards you, and I am expressing my affection towards you. Now, I wonder how you might expect the people of God to respond to, to such a positive message from God. Lord, we love you too. Uh, Lord, thank you so much. We, we choose to passionately follow you. Lord, we thank you. No, they say in response, how have you loved us? I mean, wowzers, really? God declares his love, and then the people very quickly articulate their doubt about God's love. And you see, this tells us the story of all that Malachi is speaking into, this sense of lethargy as overtaking God's people, and the priests or the religious leaders are utterly complicit with this. They've been going through the motions religiously for decades. 
And so Malachi shows up, and he, he comes along to kind of nudge them out of their spiritual lethargy, and his very first words are, I love you. In other words, if God had a refrigerator, I'm not sure he does, but if God had a refrigerator, your picture would be stuck upon it. That's how much he loves you. Now, as you'll discover, if you go on to read the rest of the book of Malachi, I'd encourage you to do that later today. God replies, in effect, by saying, you wouldn't be in such a mess if you understood how much I love you. You would not be in such a mess if you really understood how much I loved you. And then the story continues. Malachi calls out this priestly corruption, and he says to them, look, the the behavior of the leaders always affects the behaviors of those who follow. So leaders, would you sort yourselves out? There is always a cost for compromise. And then there's this brilliant moment in chapter 2, verse 3, it is there, look it up, where God says to those leaders, I'm going to plaster your faces with bovine excrement. That's the Chris Brockway translation, it it is there though. If you continue to lead your people in this way, I'm going to smother your faces with the stuff that comes out of the sacrifices that you give. And then he goes on to emphasize the importance of faithfulness in marriage, and he speaks about being a people who are passionate about justice. And then we get to our scripture verses for today. Malachi chapter 3, verses 6 to 12. And what we find in this text is that, this, and then. There's a rebuke, there's an invitation, and there is a promise. Uh, Let's read together. If you've got a Bible, do look it up. Um, Malachi is just before Christmas in your Bibles, so the last book of the Old Testament, just before the New Testament. Keep your Bibles open. We're going to keep coming back to it. It says, I, the Lord, do not change. So you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you've turned away from my decrees, and you've not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? Will a mere mortal rob God, yet you rob me, God says to them. But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings, you're under a curse. In fact, your whole nation is under a curse because you are robbing me. Now, don't miss this. Just before this really difficult rebuke, and it's really difficult, God in his loving kindness calls his people to come back to him. He reminds them of exactly what he told them at the beginning of Malachi. My arms are wide open to you. Would you please come back to me? But God says, look, there is an issue that we need to get resolved, and it's that. That's the issue. It's the issue of your tithes and your offerings. Now, God's pretty blunt here. He gets about as blunt as he gets. He says, in tithes and offerings, you're under a curse. Your whole nation is. Why? Because you are robbing me. Because you are robbing me. The people are withholding their tithes, their offerings, and they're robbing from God, they're stealing from God that which was rightly his. Now, in Old Testament times, tithing was a God-given command for his people. The word tithe literally means 10%. So they were to give 10% of their their income, they were to give 10% of their produce to God. Now, as you move on into the New Testament, the New Testament doesn't explicitly command tithing 10% per se, But it does emphasize over and over and over again the principles of open-handed giving, the principle of open-handed generosity, the principle of open-handed stewardship. And so just maybe 10% is a good minimum baseline for us to start from if we're going to live with open-handed generosity. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians says that we should give uh, with a cheerful heart, directly translated 
with an hilarious heart. Our giving should be hilarious before God. It should be um, entertaining. It should be satisfying. It shouldn't be a misery-inducing compulsion. Give with a cheerful heart. Now, these verses for us this morning, they're a sobering reminder to us, aren't they, of our responsibility to be good stewards of the blessings that God has given to us. They're a sobering reminder that we take a risk if we don't honor God over such things, because actually we're at risk, as the people were, as they were described here in Malachi, of not experiencing God's grace, His abundant grace as a result. Through the lips of Malachi, God actually is incredibly clear. He says, when we withhold our tithes and our offerings, when we don't respond with open-handed, cheerful, generous hearts in proportion to the wealth that God has blessed us with, then we're essentially robbing God and we're placing ourselves outside of his blessing. Now, we need to be really clear here. Malachi does not say it's about robbing the church. It's about robbing the temple. He doesn't say you're just robbing a religious institution or a faceless individual. He says, when you do this, you steal from God himself. Now, God's blessings are not merely, even primarily, monetary. They they encompass every aspect of our lives. Malachi goes on to say that. He says, robbing from God has consequences which affect us spiritually, emotionally, uh, and our material well-being as well. Can you see in the story that the people's relational lethargy has directly impacted their willingness to let go of their finances back to God? So in a sense, it's no wonder Malachi says to them, if only you knew how much God loved you, you would want to come back into that relationship and the byproduct of that is your finances would probably be sorted. Can you see the clear link here between the state of our relationship with God and our willingness to open up our wallets for him? Now, that's the tough bit, okay? It's done. That was one out of the three parts that you're going to get this morning. So, can we smile? Let's relax. Let's read on. Verse 10. Malachi says, or God says through Malachi, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And then he says this, test me in this, says the Lord Almighty. Now, we're going to come back to the rest of it in a minute. So in verse 10, after this stinging, this difficult rebuke that makes us all feel really sad, God makes this astonishing, and it is astonishing invitation. He says, you're invited to test me in this. Test me in this. Now, this is the only place in the whole of the Scriptures where God challenges us to put him to the test. What a powerful, what a provocative invitation. God says to us, You're allowed to test me in this matter of tithing, or we might say in this matter of uh, living with open-handed generosity, and he says to the people, see what I can do if you will just trust me enough in this matter. It's an open invitation for us to trust God with our finances so that we will be witnesses of his faithfulness, but too so that we'll be recipients of his blessing in its widest possible form. He says, don't do that, rob me, but test me in this and see what happens. Now, it's one thing, isn't it, for God to make this invitation, but actually God doesn't stop there. He goes on because his invitation is accompanied by a promise. It's accompanied by a then. Trust me in this, then, 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 then I will open up the floodgates. Listen to what God says. Let's just go back to verse 10 and read on. He says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in the house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty. 
And see if I will not open up the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be enough room to store it. I'll prevent pests from devouring your crops and the vines of your field will not drop their fruit before it's ripe, says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. Quick aside here, that last verse. All the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land. There's a witness in here somewhere. When we're obedient, when we're faithful to God, there's a witness to those who look on and they're going to be attracted uh, to see what's happening. God assures us here that when we're obedient in our giving, then he will bless us abundantly. Now, that principle still holds true today. How do I know that? Because I've experienced, maybe you've experienced it too. As we faithfully give give to God, whether that's our finances or our time or our talents, he promises to pour blessings upon us. Now, those of you that are reaching into your bags, ready to get the stones, he's preaching a prosperity gospel. He is not preaching a prosperity gospel. As we faithfully give to God, whether through our finances, our time, or our talents, he promises to pour blessings upon us. Again, these blessings are not necessarily financial, but they are blessings nonetheless. God's blessings are not limited to material wealth, but they extend to every single area of our lives. Our lives will bear fruit in abundance. Our witness will be a testimony to God's goodness and of God's faithfulness that will stretch out to the nations. If we're faithful in that, the matter of our finances, God says, test me with this, and then I will open up the floodgates of heaven. Imagine for a moment you're at Niagara Falls, and you go and stand at the base of Niagara Falls, and God just unleashes this torrent of water over you. That's the kind of blessing that Malachi is speaking of here. An abundant blessing, a lavish blessing. Our God is not a meager God. His blessings are abundant. They're overflowing. They're blessings that exceed our expectations. In fact, did you notice, and I find this really amusing when you link this to a build project, God promises to pour out so much blessing that we won't have room to store it. Ah, come on. You build one building, just maybe God will bless that act of faith and the mission and ministry so much that you won't have room to store that blessing. Let's build another. You know, in short, all this is really about an issue of the heart, isn't it? That's what Malachi is, is driving at. He's saying you're giving, you're investing in the things of God can never ever just be some cold, emotionless financial transaction. It can't just be about the bottom line and the spreadsheet, but actually it has to be about something relational. Your investing in the things of God has to flow out of an act of worship. It has to flow out of an act of devotion that you've discovered God to be so good, that he loves you so much that we just want to respond. In a sense, our giving reflects our love and our gratitude for all that God has done for us. And as I draw to a close this morning, I just want to say thank you to you this morning. We've given an invitation over the last six months, way back to April when we first announced this morning, and over recent weeks during September, to have a chat with God and see how God stirs your heart. And I just want to say thank you today. If God has been stirring in your heart and you've been obedient to respond to the way that God is calling you personally to respond. Your response today reflects your love and your gratitude for all that God has done for you. And I want to say thank you. I want to say thank you to you this morning that because of your generosity, 
others will come to know and love Jesus as Lord and Savior. You cannot put a price on that. I want to say thank you today that your giving today links our story with the past. There's continuity up to this moment. But more than that, it will leave a legacy that future generations will look back and say, do you remember those giants of the faith who in 2003, 2004 gave? I don't feel like a giant today, but with the benefit of hindsight, maybe one day we will be. I want to say thank you. But long after I've left this earth and the worms have gobbled me up, people will still be worshipping and witnessing here as a, contribution, as a consequence of the contributions that you've made. Thank you. Earlier this week, I was having um, coffee with Duncan Ridgden. Some of you will know Duncan's the uh, chaplain, one of the chaplains down at Bournemouth Hospital. And he's a bit of a closet Anglican, really. He's become more so since he started chaplaincy. And Duncan said this to me, and I was really, really struck by it. He said, God is bringing a brand new parish to your doorstep. The site over the road, you've probably noticed, is now being developed. There is a brand new parish that's landing in front of us, and we have an opportunity to be a worshipping and a witnessing community that will be attractive to the nations, to the parish which is coming over the road. How exciting. And why I love that phrase, parishes, it reminds us that it's not just about bricks and mortar, but it's about the people who will be there. We have an invitation to serve this new parish and the wider parish of BCP. Next year, CBC is 150 years old. I'm so grateful for those who have gone before us. I wonder if you know what it says on the edge of a two-pound coin. And I only discovered this after I'd done all my preparation. Look what it says. Standing on the shoulders of giants. As you give your coins, as you give your financial gifts to our build project, you become a giant of the faith. Others will look back and say thank you for being a giant. Even if today we are faced with fear and trepidation of all that's before us. Here's my prayer for today, and with this I finish. God, would you help us to be faithful? God, would you help us to be open-handed in our day so that we will sow seeds into a garden that we may not even experience? And Lord, we say thank you today that we stand on the shoulders of giants, those who have gone before us, who remind us that you are the same God who did in their day what he can still do today. We pray for our worship. We pray for our witness in our day. But too, we look forward to leaving a legacy, a garden that others will enjoy long after we're gone. Thank you that you declare over us that you love us and that you are for us. We bless you and we thank you for your goodness to us. In Jesus' name, amen.